Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now it was in this hope that we were saved, but hope that's seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints, for his people, according to the will of God, which is, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Jesus, we pray that you would use Paul's words here, inspired by your spirit uh, to speak to the heart of our suffering today. God, would we account for the rumble of panic beneath everything and find you as the God who doesn't solve it as an outside problem, who doesn't call for us to crawl out of it by our own strength, but you are the God who, who went into the depths of the, the rumble of panic. God, taking it into yourself and meeting us in it, that we would find that as the great source of our response to a world that's been broken. Meet with us today. King Jesus. Amen. We'll go and be seated. So here in Romans 8, verses 18 to 28, and really into the end of, of chapter 8, what uh, we might read in a little bit, but don't have time to go deep into today. Paul is, is just, he, he's hyper-focused on the relationship between a spirit-filled life a life that has God's empowering presence within you and moving through you, and a life that is still all the same, filled with suffering. And so kind of in a movement of kind of three parts today, this is what I think Paul is, is looking at, Paul, what Paul is detailing, what, what we're going to look at. First, Paul introduces us here into a unique view of suffering. If you're taking notes, a unique view of suffering. Second, he's going to show us how the Spirit empowers us into a unique response to our suffering. And then third, just the big question of how do I receive that response? How does that response, that unique response that the Spirit empowers in our suffering, how do I take that on for myself? How do I receive that for myself? Sound good? Cool. Or at least, we're, again, we're all on the same page. Maybe it doesn't sound good, but at least we're on the same page. So first, a unique view of suffering. What do I mean by this? Well, first, before we look back at Romans 8, just let's set up for a moment kind of some traditional responses to suffering in the world. Traditional views of suffering in the world. So uh, first, we might talk about a moralistic view of suffering. Uh, kind of what we could coin this as being is more of that kind of relationship of a karma view of suffering. That suffering is deserved. 
Maybe whatever you have done, at some level, suffering is always what comes around, goes around. Whether that is in this life or that you've got to carry over from some previous life that you lived, that now you're suffering as you slowly working through and working off the sufferings that have been incurred through bad lives. And so the response to this is, uh, be a good person in the midst of the suffering. Take it on the chin, be a good person, and maybe the next time around, whether that's the next life or the next year or two, maybe things will be different. You see this represented within views of karma, but also even in the book of Job, where Job, in the midst of his suffering, his friends come, and their regularly thing that they keep poking him on is, what did you do to deserve this, Job? So you see they have a moralistic view of suffering. Suffering is because you did bad, and so that you're getting it back. So that's the first view. At some level, that it's moralistic. The second would be self-transcendent view of suffering, or we might call this the Buddhist view, which is the belief that suffering is inherently an illusion. It's an illusion that's based in the illusion that you think that you are an individual self and uniquely because of the desires that you carry. And so the way that you deal with suffering is by purging yourself of desire. The problem with suffering is just that you have desires. If you were able to self-transcend all of your understandings of yourself, you would reach a point where you would see yourself as one small drop in the ocean of existence. And so your suffering can then be radically, radically brought down because you really aren't that much of a thing. So it's just an illusion that you, if you can transcend that, that suffering in the material world is an illusion, you will be able to transcend suffering. Does that make sense? The self-transcendent view, Buddhist view. And the third would be the view of fatalism. Now, this would be found within the Greek Stoics. This would be found within Islam. And this would be found even with some Christians that you could kind of call hyper-Calvinist. And the view within this is that suffering is decreed. It's not necessarily that you deserved it. And it's not that it's an illusion. It's that God or the gods have decreed suffering, this form of whatever you're going through for your life. And there's nothing you can do to get out of it. And so all you can do is... um, Prove yourself as being an honorable, worthy, good person in the midst of it. So suffering is an obstacle set in your path for you to prove yourself as an honorable and glorious person, faithful to the gods or faithful to God. And so just in these views, you have suffering within the moralistic view as deserved. You have suffering in the moralist view as, or moralistic view as deserved. The self-transcendent view as an illusion. And then in the fatalist view of suffering, it's, it's decreed. So just... We're just operating here. We're all intellectual, I know, but we're setting up the background now to return to Romans and just see, does Paul fit within any of these three? What is the Christian view of suffering? Look back at verse 19. And just let's, let's think through what, we've just, what I just talked about in light of what Paul says here. He says, for the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation, that's language of desire, for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into glorious freedom of God's children. Then he goes on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So just, we have these in mind, okay? And now let's just return to what we just read in Romans. So first, what do we find in Romans 8? Do we find that suffering is an illusion? No, we find that it's, it's dramatically real. Actually more real than you're able to comprehend. He says that not only are you suffering and groaning, creation itself, orcas, Pacific Ocean, the moon, all, all of creation is teeming with a desire to be what it currently is not. 
that there is in some level that all of creation is not what it was meant to be. So it all is beating its heart with a desire to be what it cannot be. And so in this view, the problem is not the illusion that's built up by desire. The problem is that all of creation is actually desiring something. The problem is the absence of fulfillment of that desire. The problem isn't the desire itself. Do you see that? For Paul, the primary answer to suffering is desire being fulfilled, both the desire of creation and the desire of God. And so for us as humans, whatever problem we have going on with our suffering is most often not the problem that you have desire, but the problem that your desires just simply aren't big enough. Far too located on your own individual life when cosmic redemption is the true desire that everything is aching for. And so it is not an illusion. It's absolutely real suffering. But countered a moralistic view that suffering is always deserved. The language that Paul uses here is that all things have been subjected to that language futility. Now, if you were with us last year, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, this ancient Israelite wisdom book reflecting on all of this sort of stuff, the problem of suffering within this world, that basically the world doesn't work like it should. And so what Paul does here in saying subjected to futility is he is hyperlinking to, he's basically like, just go back and read all of Ecclesiastes and you'll know what I'm talking about. Go back and read Ecclesiastes and watch how the, the Kohelet, how the preacher of Ecclesiastes keeps looking for things that make sense within this world, for things to work like it seems that they should and time and again finds that it's not. The guy that juices kale every single morning gets cancer at 30. Like what's going on here, Right. The good get bad and the bad get a good, comfortable life. They live long and prosper. So there's this, this, this the, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the futility that Paul's kind of hyperlinking to here is he's looking out at the world and going, there seems to be some rule, some order to this world that if I do this, then it'll go good for me. If I do this, it'll go bad for me. But at some level, that's all broken. It doesn't always work that way. And so there's things like chaos. There's, there's the, the random happenstance things that happen when, when someone walks out in front of a, a road just, just a second too soon and, and their life is taken. When, when something just doesn't work right within the process of the gestation of a child, that, that it just doesn't, there's, there's the rules that work, that normally this is how the world should work, that for whatever reason, that each individual human, we all have the, we're rolling the dice and sooner or later, it normally works well, but every now and then you roll and you just, you get snake, you lose everything. And so this is what the, Paul says, the futility here. And so is there times when suffering is deserved? Oh, 100%. There's an order and a, a grain to creation that when we go with it, there seems to be smoothness. And once we go against it, we get splinters. Absolutely. But Ecclesiastes says, as much as that rule may be true, just as often you do everything right and you get everything wrong. You do all the right stuff and you, you end up with everyone hating you. You lose everything. You, get, you, get, you, you know, fill in the thing of whatever suffering you might think of. So just notice here that counter any view of moralistic suffering, that it's always what comes around goes around, Paul's whole language of futility here and hyperlinking back to Ecclesiastes is that, that, that is not, suffering doesn't work by such a simple metric. That there's chaos. There's brokenness. This doesn't work like it should. And then finally, counter to the fatalist view that this has all been, that all your suffering is decreed by God, we find Paul very intentionally used the language that the creation was, was what to futility? 
not created for futility. It wasn't built to be this way, but this language of subjected or, or handed over. God is the creator who made a very good world seven times over, we find, in the opening pages of Genesis. At some point in the story, this is what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are dealing with, subjected or handed over creation to what Paul uses this language of the bondage to decay, the slavery to decay. Now here we get into a whole thing that could become a whole sermon on um, specifically the relationship between human freedom and God's honoring of both human and spiritual beings' freedom to do with God as they will. Like Lorenzo led us in our time of prayer. Jesus regularly invites people to follow him, but he, he openly gives them the freedom to choose or reject that decision. And in that rejection, Jesus honors all of the implications that that may have for their life. And in the same way, what we find that story is playing out on a cosmic scale with all of humanity, that God honors the freedom that he has given us as volitional little image bearers with deep implications for the way that we live our lives. And so suffering then is God saying, look, in order for me to deal with evil and deal with the rebellion that's going on, I can do one of two things. I can either nuke the earth and start over with like humans 2.0, like earth 2.0, or in the midst of humanity's freedom and their ability to choose evil and destruction and chaos and death, or the other way, I'm going to commit myself to work within a world that's been subjected to futility. Like Paul says, in hope that redemption and freedom and life would be able to come out of it. And so God has looked over those two options and he has, in, in, in his wisdom and knowledge, chosen that he would rather take the pathway of freedom and working within a world that's broken where suffering is present rather than one where he would say no to you and I as his created image bearers. So committed to redemption that he's willing to let the weeds of suffering and pain and death and cancer grow within his garden so that he might, so he might win you. And it brings us into a whole bunch of other big, big, big like theological questions. And so you're just gonna have to sit with those for right now. Because this is the unique view that Paul's just giving here. It's a unique view of the world that doesn't see suffering as an illusion or deserved or a decreed. The, the, the Christian vision of suffering is that the world was created good, but has been broken by human and spiritual beings' rebellion from God. And yet God is so committed to his image bearers, so committed to humanity, that he is at work within this world, at work within the brokenness, bringing about that language of the revelation of God's children that Paul used here, bringing about the redemption of our bodies, as he says in verse 22, which is a side note, is also where this view is completely different than any other of those traditional views of suffering because all of those other traditional views of suffering, what's the end goal of the story? Regardless of how you get your suffering and why, the end goal is escaping the material world escaping your embodied life. The problem with suffering is at some level we're down here in the material fleshy world, icky, and so the goal is get away and get out of it. What we find in Romans 8 is that the end goal of the story of what God's work is to do is not to get you out of earth, not escape or destruction of this world. It's not, not getting off, you know, it's a dharma, it's whatever it may, you may think it is. The end goal of the Christian view is, I love the language Paul uses, the redemption of our bodies, the restoration of the created and material world. And so this is the unique view of suffering. It's one that this world is good, but it's broken, but God is at work 
bringing about redemption, bringing about the language that he uses of birthing pains, that now the suffering work and the pain and the groaning that the creation itself feels is now this process of giving birth to a brand new world where suffering has been done away with. But this is the process that God's committed himself to. How are we doing? Unique view of suffering, okay? So here, now the question that we move into is, okay, so then what is a Christian, or in Paul's language here, a spirit-filled response to that suffering? Believing that God's at work within the world, what's the Christian response to suffering? And this is where, like I talked about, this is where oftentimes those of us who emphasize the Spirit's empowering work within us can, can, can miss out on things a little bit, okay? So just track with me for a second. Um, we believe wholeheartedly that God is at work in bringing miraculous moments of freedom, of redemption, of healing in and over circumstances. We eagerly desire to use the language that Paul uh, instructs us to do this with um, because we believe that that's absolutely at work and that when we do that, that is some place and part of what God's ultimate work of redeeming our bodies and redeeming the world is playing into. And so we absolutely pursue that. But the main focus of all of the New Testament, the main foundation of Christian belief, the main foundation of what we're building our whole response to a world of suffering on is not healing. Do we eagerly pursue? 100%. But it's not the foundation. What's the foundation? Look with me in verse 20, 24 and 25. I think it's right behind me. What's the foundation as we live spirit-filled lives in a suffering-filled world? Verse 24, now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. What is the Christian response? What's the foundation of the spirit-filled life in response to suffering? Hope, hope. Hope is the word that we have here. Hope is the word that we have here. Spirit-filled hope is the response to a suffering-filled world. Now, hope can mean a billion different things. Hope is someone's name. Is that what we're talking? No, it's not what we're talking about. But hope is, in some cases, hope is um, something that I just want or I desire. I hope, you know, I'll get to go see whatever, you know, Barbie with everybody this week or whatever. I hope that, I don't actually hope that. Uh, I'm sure I, I, I keep hearing it's great. So no offense to anyone that, that worked on Barbie. Um, so I, 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 it's a, we, we use hope as desire. Like I genuinely hope that I, wait, um, I don't know. What do I, what do I want to do today? I'm, pre, I'm in preaching, but I'm not in like, what do I want? Um, I don't know. I hope I can take a nap today. That's honestly what I hope. So what am I using there? That hope is just, it's des, I'm using that as d- desire. I have, I have two kids. I'm probably not going to get that. So there's no expectation. It's just desire, right? We use hope that way. Or we do use hope sometimes as being an expectation that, that does overlap with some level of desire. And other times, hope is just like, we use it just as trust. So in English, it's confusing, even more when we remember that we're reading a Greek translation of English, that we're just, what is hope? This is where Paul is so helpful here, because what he does in the surrounding verses that we looked over today is he gives three aspects or three elements of spirit-filled hope. Whatever you think hope is, I'm going to ask you to, maybe there'll be some overlap, but I'm going to ask you to set that aside. You can put it in the chair next to you. Like, whatever you need to do, set that aside. We're going to let Paul build up what he's talking about when he talks about spirit-filled hope. He's going to do it through three aspects that we're going to look at, and that is groaning, considering, and waiting. Groaning, considering, and waiting. 
So we're gonna look at groaning, considering, and waiting as three aspects of spirit-filled hope. But first, as I always do, who, who noticed the, uh, the pronouns in the passage today? You gotta pay attention to the pronouns. What's Paul's assumption? Whatever spirit-filled hope is, whatever you know, groaning, waiting, considering is, what's Paul's assumption throughout the context in which we do this hoping work as we go through suffering? We, us, ourselves. Christian hope is, is not an individualistically experienced element of the spiritual life. It's collective, there's our name, it's communal, it's plural. Dr. Robert uh, Stolero, Stolero, Dr. Robert Stolero, he's a therapist. And uh, this week I came across a wonderful, his definition of trauma. We love talking about trauma right now. So he's got a great definition of trauma. He identifies trauma as being acute emotional pain, but he says specifically, and this is the key thing right here, that is unable to find a relational home for itself where it can be carried. Stolero identifies that the primary measurement of trauma is not the extent of the pain that you've suffered. This is why we even have a separation of big, like capital trauma and lowercase t trauma. We got big trauma, low trauma. What, what unifies those two kinds of trauma is not that there's some metric point of like, well, this one was like a father wound and down here it was just like you got bullied in middle school or maybe that one's bigger, right? Like the difference isn't these two things. The difference is whether or not that trauma, regardless of how acute that emotional pain was, is able to find a relational home with another where we're able to talk and process through our suffering with another. So Paul just assumes that whatever suffering we're going through, whatever hope we're leaning into happens as we're sharing that with another, whether that's our friend, whether that's our discipleship group, whether that's a pastor or a therapist, Christian therapist or a spiritual director. There's a whole side sermon right there. But the whole point is, whatever suffering, whatever hope we're being invited into, Paul assumes that all of what he's about to look at exists and happens within community. That suffering, in order for it to be dealt with well, it requires a relate. I love that language that Solaro uses, a, a relational home, a place where the emotional pain that we've experienced can be set down and carried and held. And there are, there are so many of us that have, have great, deep emotional suffering and pain that we, just, we have not experienced the we hour ourselves, a moment to bear one another's burdens, as Paul writes. Now, some of that has been inflicted upon you by another, whether that's a parent or a guardian or maybe a boss, whatever it might be. The, one of my favorite books is um, uh, Frederick Buechner, his, his Telling Secrets, kind of equal parts memoir and him just reflecting on the Christian life. And he opens with the story of his father's suicide as a child. He just, he remembers the day, what dad was wearing. Me and my brother were playing in the bedroom. He came in kind of patted us on the head and then he went downstairs into the garage and, and turned on the car, closed up all the doors and dad just waited and never woke up. Immense emotional pain. And what happened? Mom, before the funeral even happened, picked up the house and they moved across, literally across the world. And mom would never talk about that. He talked about his father becoming the secret that we all carried but no one talked about. Trauma. The father's suicide, not finding a relational home. 
being little little Frederick, by all accounts, wanted to talk about that. His little heart needed to process through that loss, but it wasn't able to find a relational home. Some of us have it inflicted on us, but, but the thing that we must be super aware of is in an increasingly individualistic and isolated age, many of the capital T or lowercase t traumas that we experience are the absence of our suffering finding a relational home with another simply because we don't have those kinds of relationships or think that we can trust that with another. But Paul assumes we are ourselves in our suffering. And so we need to assume we are ourselves in our suffering. Amen? Okay. So let's, let's now look. What, with that in mind, that what we're talking about here is not individualistic but collective, what, what is the Christian, the spirit-filled response to suffering? First, it is, it is groaning. Look again at verse 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with these labor pains and not just the orcas and the blue herons, but we ourselves who have the same spirit as first fruits. We have the spirit of God dwelling and residing within us. What do we do? We groan within ourselves. So many of us, we think that like, what does it mean to have the spirit dwelling within you? Is that like you hover above suffering and people like throw things at you and you're like, nothing sticks to me. I'm rubber, you're glue. No suffering. Or we take on that what it means to have the spirit within us is, and this is, I find this so prevalent within certain church communities, is to have the spirit within you means you don't groan. You don't lament. You don't cry. You don't, as the word can be translated in Greek, even complain. We don't emotionally carry and express what our suffering is doing to us because we've been told that would be the absence of spirit-filled hope. Some of you need like the liberation of this verse right now over your life that the Spirit of God invites you to groan. The Spirit of God invites you to weep and lament. We've got a whole book called Job about it. We've got a book of songs and like half of them all about lament. There are some of you that need to be liberated from the fact that the invitation of the Spirit is to cry. And some of you are like, I'm not a crying person. That, that's That's okay. Like, you need to process through this in whatever way you do. Some of us are just big, weepy babies, and we love verses like this. But I'm just saying, regardless of how you're wired, emotional or not, you are invited to groan. You are invited to express the reality of your pain. God invites it. He doesn't invite it, but he also joins with us in it. Look in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we should. When we're going through suffering, it's like we can't find the words. If you've ever been in that kind of suffering where you get to the point where you don't even know how to pray anymore, that's what Paul's talking about. And he says what happens, though, is the Spirit himself then begins to intercede for us with inexpressible groanings. The Spirit himself groans as he prays for you. Now there's two different ways that this passage can be translated, this inexpressible groanings that come out in some way rooted to the Spirit. Now this can either be that in the midst of our suffering, when we don't have the words to pray, that the Spirit prays for us with words that we don't hear. So Paul's kind of going, hey, even when you don't have the words to pray, even when all you can do is groan, but even your groaning can't even make words that in any way make any, like even when that's happening, the Spirit is praying perfectly vocal, perfectly verbal in the midst of your suffering. Can be translated that way. The other way that it can be translated or understood, probably is not translated, but understood, is that the Spirit doesn't just necessarily pray for us, but the Spirit prays through us. 
And so what many will read this as is that Paul is appealing to what we looked at, you know, months ago now, is um, praying in tongues, inexpressible groanings, that as we're praying in the midst of suffering, we don't have the words to pray, and there's just this moment where the Spirit fills us with a unique power that we begin to pray with words that don't make any sense to us, but all the same are the Spirit praying through us in the midst of it. Now, regardless of whichever way you think that is, that's a whole, that could be a whole, we could have a really fun conversation. At least for me, that'd be a fun conversation. Most of you don't want to do that. Um, we could spend time talking about that, but just I, just I bring this all to say, is the Spirit of God, what it means to have spirit-filled hope is not only an invitation for you to groan and lament and to weep, to carry your anger over the situation, but that the Spirit himself joins you in that. Whether that's for you or through you, the Spirit, the Spirit himself groans. And so whatever, whatever framework you have for the Christian response to suffering, whatever it means for you to hope in a Christian worldview, it first begins with an invitation to and a God's participation with your suffering. That in your confusion, in the loss, in the anger, in the fear, that the Spirit joins you and groans with you. To go back to Stolero's line, as much as we assume the we ourselves and the us in our suffering and our groaning together, we find that first and foremost, we find a relational home for our pain with the Spirit. Someone to carry and hold that with us and to pray with us. And that's what God's presence does with us. So the first aspect of hoping is groaning. The next is considering. Look with me in verse 18, back to the top. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. This language of like comparison or consideration in particular here is, um, this is math talk. This is like calculator language. This is like Excel spreadsheet talk right here. What Paul's talking about here is, uh, is language in the Greek of, of calculation. He goes, when, when he says this, basically what he's getting at is, when I sit down and I kind of make the, you know, I create my little Excel or, you know, numbers document. Uh, that was for the Mac users. Uh, <laughs> Whoa. Wow. It's like, I'm a PC over here. Whatever, man. Okay, not all of us are like doing that level of calculation. I'm just like doing like basic budget stuff. Can I afford ice cream this way? Okay, so what Paul's language of use is talking about here is he's, it's like he's got an Excel spreadsheet and he's got a column that's of his losses and his sufferings and he's got a column that is of his profits and of his wins, and what he literally says is, when I list out the sufferings that I have gone through in my life on one hand, and I weigh them against me laying out the profits and the benefits and the goodness of God in the other, they're not even worth comparing. Not even worth comparing. And you're like, well, what about my suffering? Yeah, maybe. Just go back, just read Paul's life. He's like, yeah, I've been shipwrecked. How many of you have been shipwrecked three times? How many of you have been bit by snakes? How many of you have been, had, had betrayal of the clo your closest friend? How many of you, your allegiance in, uh, to Jesus required you to leave everyone and everything that you knew before? 
And Paul goes, man, I list all of that out. And then in the right-hand column of the wins that I have, I, I write out, as he says, the glory that's going to be revealed. To go back a verse before, he says that I am an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ. To go back a couple of verses before that, that I know the creator God is my Abba. That I live with a life of no condemnation. That there is a new creation blooming and being birthed out of the midst of the suffering. He goes, when I list that in the right-hand column, all these puny shipwrecks, they just, they look so small to me. He's able to consider, he's able to calculate. This is, and it's a spirit-filled gift. The spirit enables you to zoom out of your suffering and see it all, not just in light of eternity, but in light of what's actively, presently true about you through the accomplished work of Jesus. Now, we talked about three traditional views of suffering, but now we get to talk about our what most of us operate within, even within the church, like because it's just what you're shaped in. And that is the secular approach to suffering. I used to say secular Western, but more and more as secularism takes over the world, um, it, it's no longer just found within the West. So we'll just say a secular materialist worldview. Because here's the reality, a secular materialist worldview, which is primarily built around only what we see and presently experience matters. And at the end of the day, the only desire that's worth chasing is your individual happiness, is, is completely ill-equipped, unequipped to deal with suffering, specifically in regards to any consideration. There's no calculation. If the end goal of your life is happiness, then suffering is always, best case scenario, an obstacle to what your life is really about. And at worst, when it's something that you can't do anything about, you'll have nothing, you have nothing but despair. So you're just trying to downplay the despair that you feel medicating yourself through weed, shrooms, and Netflix or whatever else that, you know, whatever you pick your poison. Like this is what we have to operate with is this understanding of realizing that the secular worldview that we have makes it incredibly, increasingly impossible for us to deal with this. This is not just me. This is uh, Dr. Richard uh, Schwader. He's an uh, anthropologist. And so he does a whole write-up on, on the problem of suffering within the world and varying different ways that we look at it. And so this is, this is his take. This isn't just Ryan. He goes, all these other traditional worldviews, when, when people encounter suffering, they have some basis of calculation and consideration, whether that may be karma, whether that may be the approval of the gods, whether that may be you fill in the blank. He says, but secular worldview, the, the, the one that we are shaped within most, has nothing. Ask anybody, what, what do you get out of suffering? Nothing. The thing you get out of suffering is you get out of it. Stay as far away from it as you can. And so the primary like self-carry, like help books of like how to deal with suffering in your life largely revolve around mitigation and avoidance. Avoid suffering as much as you can and mitigate, play it down. So you like do yoga and you go get the kale juice stuff and you're doing ginger shots and you're doing all of the stuff. You've got like multiple seats. It's like it takes differing forms for all of us of the sort of suffering that we avoid and mitigate. And I'm not like anti-seatbelt. I'm not like, let's, let's say let's, there's some suffering that comes about because people are just being dumb. So maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should be safe at some level. Totally for that. The problem is that as much kale as you eat, as much ginger juice cleanses as you go through, you will die. As many times as you put on a seatbelt, you're rolling the dice every single time for the hit that it doesn't matter whether or not you're wearing a seatbelt. Like there is avoidance and mitigation of suffering is, is that's good. But our secular worldview stops there. And when you get suffering that can't be mitigated and can't be avoided, all that's left is despair. And so then 
What do we operate to? I'm joking, but it's like, yeah, uh, whatever you need to do. So that's like, you need to eat ice cream at midnight, like whatever, you find the thing. So if it's porn that like helps you stave off the despair of your death, then like, that's great if that's what you need. Or maybe you just sink yourself into your work and that's, that's how we all stave off is that I'll make something of, of, of worthwhile out of my work and then that will help me stave off this identity crisis that I'm having, that I'm gonna die. We just, all we can have is what to do with the despair, but nothing ever helps us to deal with the suffering itself. There's no calculation. There's no consideration of anything on the other side of it. And so this then is, oh, and then this is also um, Dr. Paul Brand, uh, so medical professional, working within India for years, and then he came over to America and he identified the same thing. He said, these, these Americans, man, he goes, they avoid suffering at all costs. They're more comfortable than any other people group I've ever seen, and yet they are more unequipped to deal with suffering and they're more traumatized by it than anybody else that I've ever seen. Why? Because we don't have a construct for considering that there's anything on the other side of suffering. This is why we don't do commitment anymore. Because commitment is suffering. It is saying no and taking on the cost of something for the sake of something better on the other side. This is why everyone hates being parents now or hates kids in general. And this is Ryan's hot take moment. Because kids, <laughs> kids are long suffering for the sake of building out something better than yourself in the next generation. And we are far too selfish and like avoidance of suffering to do the hard work of actually being committed and being around for our kids. All right, hot take done. Sorry, that wasn't even in the notes. Um, <laughs> I know, that was a hot take. Um, so all this to say is, just, this is this is what the secular view is building within us. An inability to calculate what's on the other side of suffering because the end goal is happiness. The end goal is happiness and not, as we've been looking at, the redemption of my bodies and the full adoption of myself as a child of God and the, the, the restoration of the cosmos. And so what happens is when we actually move out of a secular colonization of our minds and the way that we think about suffering, and we begin to retake the form that we've been made for, the way that God has made us, when we take on these things that have been built up in and around the resurrection of Jesus, our inheritance in God and co-heirs with Christ, what ends up happening is we're able to do the consideration that Paul talks about here, and we find that it radically relativizes our suffering. We do the consideration, and Paul, like he says in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Uh, for like Sabbath kind of getaway trip yesterday, we, um, we went up to the Santa Barbara Zoo. It's money. Los Angeles Zoo. <laughs> Santa Barbara Zoo is where it's at. Walkable. There's no awful inclines. It's cool. It's right on the beach. They got rat animals. They have this thing that's called the walkabout where you get to like walk into the, like the kangaroo exhibit. They don't let you touch them, but you're close enough. You're, you're definitely close enough. Um, and so we were going to drive up there with the kids. It was going to be rad. And um, we took PCH because we're idiots. And, um, you know, you do the, the initial thing when you're like you're getting out of the house. You're like, oh, it's an hour and a half. Great. Love it. Let's go. Like, it's going to be great. Um, three hours in, we were losing our minds. And... Um, and it was just the funniest thing because um, Aaron, Aaron, this, this is, says far more about how I normally am than like the week that I did good yesterday. But Aaron was like, um, you're, not, you're not being yourself. Like, you're good right now? Basically, anytime I'm in traffic, I just turn into a goblin. And, uh, 
and she's like, how are you, how are you like chill right now? Like, how are you okay? And um, I'm not comparing, well, maybe I am comparing suffering with PCH. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful example. Um, but um, I just was like, I told Aaron, like, what I'm doing right now in my head is I'm literally like three hours in traffic, and in my head, I'm doing like the Excel spreadsheet where I'm listing out like, I'm going to touch a kangaroo today. I don't care what they say. And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, uh, that, okay, the, Lin, the Linleys are going to meet, they're, they're already up there, and so we're going to meet them. And, and there's all these rad animals that we get to see. And the way that the Santa Barbara Zoo, the lions like to chill like right up against the glass, like the closest you've ever been to a lion. And the, the gorillas are going to come. And Arlo is out of his mind excited to see Donkey Kong. Like, thank you, Mario movie. Gorillas are now Donkey Kong. And uh, so he's so excited to see Donkey Kong. And, and then um, we always, right after we finish up at the zoo, there's, there's a, because right next to the beach, there's a restaurant right on the beach. So we're going to sit there and have dinner together. And then there's a playground that we're going to go to. And then there's a soft serve Taiyaki place in Ventura that we're going to hit on the way home. Like, I'm just like, boop, 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 like going down the list of like all of the like coming glories that like are going to be, and like, what did it do in the midst? And then I start adding in like, hey, if you're going to sit in traffic, you might as well do it like alongside the beach on the Pacific. I'm just like watching dudes surf and they're like moving faster than me in my car. <laughs> I'm just like, man, you guys have it right now. And, um, and I'm getting to talk with Aaron and we're having conversations with the kids. They're playing this song that they're obsessed with that like by the time we got to the zoo, they had Psalm 100 memorized. Come on. Um, they don't normally do that, which is why I'm like using this as a moment to make me look cool. Um, so this is like a long-winded spiel. All I'm trying to get to is the, the very reality of even while I was sitting in the car actively experiencing the quote-unquote suffering that is PCH, knowing what was coming on the other side and knowing what I was moving into and looking to see what was happening even in the midst of me being on the, stuck in the car radically relativized and brought down what would normally have sent me through the sky, like the sunroof. And, and, and so I just say, once again, that, the, comparing that to cancer is like, hear me, I'm not trying to, oh, I, I know suffering. Like, I tried to go to the zoo yesterday. Not at all what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that this, this, this is the kind of vision that what Paul is getting at here is just simply in the midst of suffering, that what the Spirit brings about is an ability to look long term into the future to see our inheritance with God, our co-inheritance with Christ, to see who we are now, and then also to zoom out and see what God is up to in the midst of even this moment while I'm facing my suffering. And I find that sorrow and pain that I used to think were, were exact opposites with happiness and joy, now we're able to in some way become complementary. St. Teresa of Avila said that when we experience the first hug and kiss of God in heaven, it will make all the suffering of our past life uh, look like nothing more than a bad night in a hotel. Like, do you have a view of God that's that big, that all of your suffering, just, just a hug and a kiss from God would be able to do that with your suffering? You see, this is what Paul invites us into. See, this is a hope that isn't simply um, just kind of like gritting your teeth, pushing through. It's an ability to calculate and bring the truth of who you presently are and where your future is going, even in the midst of your suffering in the present. And it radically relativizes it. It fills you up with joy in the midst of it. Okay, one, one more, and then uh, we've got to wrap out. One more aspect of, of this is not just groaning, not just considering, but waiting. Look at verse 25. Paul says, now if we hope for what we do not see, that is that coming redemption that's not yet here, we eagerly wait for it with patience. And then again in verse 23, you'll see behind me, 
Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit, as first fruits, we just looked at this, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Eagerly waiting, Paul uses that language twice. It's, it's language of, it's actually about someone's posture. So if you imagine someone who's like up on their tippy toes, head looking, for, I'm gonna fall off the stage, uh, but like head looking forward, you know, eyes peeled, looking at the horizon, waiting for something that's coming. It's tippy toe talk. It's eyes peeled language. It's like whenever we do Thursday night, movie nights, and we, we get takeout or whatever, it's, it's what my kids do either when I'm coming back from picking it up or we're waiting for like the door dasher. Is the kids, our, our couch is up against our window. And so the kids crawl up on the back of the couch and then through the shutters, they're looking, or most dangerously, they go out and crawl on up on the fence itself. They're just like watching each car mm, go by. That's not them, mm, that's not them, right? Eagerly waiting for the coming glory, you know, of you know, Xiaolong Bao or whatever. And um, so this is what Paul's talking about. So once we have this calculation, this consideration, there's also happening, even in the meantime, a waiting, a, a looking forward to what God is going to bring about, which Paul defines at the very end of our passage today in verse 28, where he says, what are we waiting for? What are we keeping our eyes peeled on? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. This is what we're keeping our eyes peeled. This is the tippy toe, God working all things together for the good of those who love them. Now, this is a coffee tweet verse. Um, I, I, that, that, what I mean by that is it's like thrown on coffee cups and it's tweeted or it's like said over coffee with like zero context. Like whatever you're going through, you're like, you're groaning and someone's like, all things work together for good. And you're like, what does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds so good right now, right? And then we don't know what it means. So, I just want to identify a couple of things here. What do we mean when we mean waiting? The first, the first, um, well, first is just how this can be translated. It is rather than saying we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, uh, who are called according to his purpose, is just kind of a more simple translation. It's a little more wooden is for those loving him, God works uh, together for the good, all things or something like that. It's the whole point being it doubles down on the fact that this working is, is God actively at work within that but a couple of things worth pointing out. The first is those who love God, their suffering range of what they can go through. Is it some things, a few things, all things. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose, what things can they go through? All, all things. There is a view of Christianity that some of us have that like, because I'm on team Jesus means that like, like everybody's playing the suffering game, but I'm playing like, you know, I got a handicap. Like I got, I got a couple notches down for me because I'm on team Jesus. No, what do, what do they experience? All things. Half of our surprising sometimes is our surprise. This is happening to me? All, all things. This is why when he lists in verse uh, 35, when he says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Paul lists those things not as like, you know, like the crazy stuff that might happen, swords and danger. He's listing these as active possibilities within the life of the church. So first and foremost, whatever our waiting is, our waiting is in the midst of all things. There's no suffering, there's no sin that you are, are somehow excused from 
because you voted team Jesus. In fact, as Paul will regularly write, Jesus himself will say, actually in entering into being on team Jesus, entering into having the spirit filling you is actually gonna lead to more of the all things than less. And so first, what we're waiting for is we're waiting in the midst of all things. Next, what we're waiting for is this language of work together, that God works together for good. God does not decree all things. God does, this is not language of divine determinism that God is like up in heaven playing like duck, duck, die with each of you every single day, deciding, or that he did that from like history past. God is not doing bad things to you to get good things out of you. God rarely, if ever, I'm still working on that for myself, but definitely rarely, if ever, brings suffering to his people. And when and if he does though, it is always this, this, this working out that he's doing. And so this language of work together, is, it's actually where we get the, uh, you know, you've seen it in, I'm sure, your Slack channel, the language of synergy. Like the English word synergy is rooted in the, the Greek word that Paul uses here. So this is language of like active um, participation, but like a collaborative working with something. And so the idea is that God doesn't like do all things to you. The idea is that God is so committed to you that he's entering into all things and the language is working it and making it bend towards your good. So it's not that God gives cancer, but what, but what the promise is, is that not that God necessarily does suffering, but that God is never going to waste your suffering ultimately. So the language of working is as if that, that a certain scenario or situation was bent to go this way and God is actively at work, working the night shift, as Gary Bashir says, to bring about these things and have them point and end in your ultimate good. He's, he's at work in those things. And so the way that God's at work is, is very regularly in the midst of suffering. God um, uses suffering to catalyze growth, to awaken things within you and drive you in a direction that you, you would not have, have gone in apart from suffering. Now, this is not that God needs suffering to do that within you, but that God's not going to waste it. And the work that he's committed to doing in you, as Paul says later in Romans 8, conforming you to the image of his son, he will use every element and ingredient within your life for all the bondage to decay and futility that there is to bend it into conforming you further into his image. There are some things that I would not wish on myself, that I would never wish on any of you that I have gone through, that I would never take back, though, the way that God worked it towards my good. And so part of the calculating that we need to do is not just looking at how am I an heir and co-heir with Christ, but calculating and looking to what is God doing in the midst of this right now with me and my suffering? Who is he making me to be in the midst of this? But, but the third thing, though, is that oftentimes, very regularly, there's some suffering that just flat out, that you go, I'm suffering this. This isn't doing anything to me, God. Like maybe if I think of it, I can name that, but there's some suffering that's just suffering, full stop. And so part of what we need then is, is not just an ability to calculate, but, but to, to zoom out that what he says is he's working all things together, which, which requires that in order to see the ultimate good that he's working out of it is for all things to be together. What I mean by this is like that it will take oftentimes not just a couple weeks in your suffering for you to see what God's up to or not just a few months or years. Oftentimes it may take the other side of death and resurrection to see what God was up to. God does not work on like a sitcom schedule 
like a little three act, like, you know, the setup of the plot and then, oh, there's the conflict and then there's the resolution in like a weekly little 30 minute increment for you. God is, God is at work with an eternal work that he's doing of bending all things towards the good. And so oftentimes it will take, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, the, us waiting for the time when Jesus returns, when the revelation of God's sons happens, when the redemption of our bodies occurs and the creation is renewed back to its truly very good state for us to finally go, oh, God, God has made all sad things come untrue. That he has turned back every sorrow into glory. And so that's part of what our waiting is, is we're waiting not just for a few months or years for us to see what God is up to, but very regularly in our suffering, waiting, waiting to the other side of, of new creation to find what God was up to. And so it's trust. And so this is the hope that we've been invited into. And so now as we close, we wrap it up. It was a long one, but we're talking about suffering, so that's okay. Paul, so the question is, okay, Here's a Christian worldview, and here's a unique Christian response to it, that we are invited and find God groaning with us in the midst of our suffering, that an ability to consider and calculate um, glory and goodness that God is at work in doing both now and forever. And so in the meantime, we wait, not as a posture of disengaging from our life, but waiting as a posture as we go about living our lives, that we're always on our tippy toes looking for what God might be up to. But the question is, how do you receive this for yourself? Verse 28. Before we get into the all things working together, Paul says, we know. Do we know that? It seems pretty often in my life that I feel like I don't see God working all things together for the good of those who love him. To go back to Ecclesiastes talk, pretty regularly I see those that love him finding a lot of bad. Do we know that? How do we know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him? How do we know that? Because in order for us to receive this, it will require first and foremost that we know. This is the basis of our hope, is God is going to work all things together for the good of those who love him. And so we have to know that. How do we know that? The Spirit, as he always does, loves to introduce us and bring us back time and again to the person of Jesus. When we look at the life of Jesus, we find him entering into a process of suffering that looks remarkably similar to what Paul has just identified here within us. When you look at Jesus' incarnate life, living fully human in our midst, in a world that's subjected to futility and in bondage to decay, we find Jesus groaning very regularly, don't we? There at Lazarus' tomb, he groans, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We find Jesus groaning with creation over a world that's broken and been subjected to futility. In doing so, we find that the answer to the problem of evil is not a philosophical answer. It's not some kind of regimen that you put yourself on to get through it and endure it. The answer to suffering in the Christian view is the God who suffers with his people, the God who suffers with his creation, who groans with us. Even more on his cross, as Jesus was dying, we find him pray the words of Psalm 22, where Jesus says, quoting from Psalm 22, praying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my words of groaning? See, in order for us to groan, and for our groaning to truly be not just us complaining or whining about our suffering or, or whatever, that maybe that, that downplays it, but, but holding our suffering, for it to truly be a spirit-filled suffering, a spirit-filled groaning, excuse me, 
It will require us to find, through the Spirit, Jesus is groaning, becoming present with our groaning. That's what invites us to groan. That's how we know that the Spirit groans with us is that we find Jesus groaning with us. Similarly, we find that Jesus didn't just groan, Jesus considered. Hebrews 12, verse two says, for the joy that lay before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising, it's such a fun translation, but it's, um, he counted the shame as nothing to be regarded. It's literally more of that, you know, Excel spreadsheet talk. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus was looking into human life, one that ended with his death on the cross, the, the author of Hebrews says, he sat down, Jesus did the Excel spreadsheet, and he wrote down the horrors of the cross. He wrote down the suffering that he would endure, going to the cross, dying for sins, giving himself for you. And in the prophet column, he wrote, among many other names, your name. And gladly said, I will, I will em embrace and go into the shame of the cross and all that it carries for the joy that's set before me. And the joy was that prophet column that was each individual name of each of his people. And so what that means is that when I'm doing my calculation in the midst of my suffering, that this, this Jesus's prior calculation is the, is the primary way that I move into calculating anything in my life. Why am I able to consider myself and write in the prophet column, co-heir with Christ, heir of God, to know God is Abba, to be a part of the resurrection of this new redeemed world? Why can any of those things go in my prophet column? Because Jesus wrote my name in his. And so he gladly entered into the suffering and the shame of the cross and so now as I calculate my suffering, it all is available and possible because of Jesus' calculation and value of me. And then finally, Jesus waited. As he went to his cross, as he was dying on the cross, one of his final prayers as he gave up his life was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he goes into the tomb three days, all of it, his death and his laying until Easter Sunday was Jesus waiting for his father to work the good out of the evil that he had gone into. What more is death than that final surrender of giving up my full self into, God, you work good. I've seen signs of it in my life, and now I'm giving myself over, trusting that resurrection and life are on the other side of even this. And the whole basis of that assumption first goes back to Jesus' giving of himself and entrusting himself to the hand of God. And if it stopped here, this would be encouraging, but not really a basis for hope, which is why we find Jesus' resurrection as the primary source of what Peter writes, our living hope. That the hope that we have is not just a simple philosophical system, but it is grounded in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so because of that then, when I go, how do I know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him? I look at the empty tomb and I look at Easter Sunday. That's how I know. Jesus' resurrection is how I know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And so what that means then is as I go through my suffering, there is nothing that God is not able to resurrect life out of. As we close, uh, Paul continues in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 35. What then are we to say about these things? Namely, that we have no condemnation, that we have a new mindset, all of the stuff of Romans 8, and specifically as we just talked about uh, that God is gonna work all things together for the good of those who love him. What can we say about this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him, co-heirs, grant us everything? 
Verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? No condemnation. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is now at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Isn't that wild? You have the Father receiving intercession for you from both the Spirit and Jesus. That, I, sorry. Uh, verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then all things, can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. He continues, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, there's our bondage to futility, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So, so Romans, the spirit-filled life, as much as we may talk and we did talk about healing and prophetic and all these incredible works of God, the spirit life in Romans 8, begins in verse one with the promise that there is no sin that can condemn through Jesus' finished work on the cross. And because of his resurrection, there is no suffering that can separate us from it either. Let's pray.